Well, it's great to be here with you again. Uh, it feels like just a couple of weeks ago, I was preaching here on Zoom. And here we are at the first Sunday of Advent. So uh, it's great to be with you. If I haven't met you before, I would love to meet you after the service. My name is Jason. Um, and uh, so stop by and say hi. I'd love to greet you. Bless you, help you in any way that I can. Uh, or just have a conversation. Let's pray together as we prepare to hear God's word. Almighty God, you must indeed be the only God if you can deliver on your promise for a future. If there's one thing out of our control, Lord, it's the future. So to guarantee that you will get the world that you want and that it will be more glorious than we could fathom, surely this identifies you as the one true and living God. Now, Lord, we are waiting for you. Open it up to us. Rend the heavens and come down. We await your advent, Lord Jesus. Amen. I personally have a long and unsavory history with prophecy and apocalyptic literature in the Bible. Um, apocalyptic literature is, is like the one we just heard in our gospel reading, but it's a poetic and imaginative way of talking about our future. So it, it reveals or uncovers something for us, and the world has not lacked for people who love to decipher the secrets of the apocalyptic in order to discern the future, uh, on a timeline, as it were. I remember, some of you may remember this, I remember evangelists that used to come to our church when I was very young, and they would preach a week of sermons uh, on Bible prophecy. Anybody ever experienced something like this? You're chuckling and nodding your heads. Okay, I'm not alone. At the end of each night, there was a tease, there was always a tease, to bring us back the next night. You know, something like, tomorrow night, I'm going to tell you who Gog and Magog are in the book of Revelation and exactly when and where they're going to make their attack. Seriously, I heard these things. Lots of nonsense. Each night, this evangelist would build an intensity and linking the biblical text with current events in such a way that we were all convinced it was our last night on earth. And we weren't going to wake up the next morning because Jesus was going to come back in the middle of the night. And everything had lined up, he said. There was nothing else that needed to happen prior to Jesus' return. I would often hear that. Young people, like myself, would leave those services simultaneously enamored with the rhetorical powers of this person, but also very deeply concerned that we would be hurled into heaven before we could truly experience all that this life had to offer. Amazingly enough, the vision of sitting on a cloud playing harps for eternity wasn't very compelling to adolescents. There were only a few problems with these prophecy sermons and conferences. Uh, one was their interpretation of biblical passages would fluctuate according to current events. You know, during the Cold War, 
Babylon in Revelation was what country? Russia, of course. Now, Islamic terrorists have taken up that mantle. When the first Gulf War began in the early 90s, a plethora of books were published interpreting the events. You remember seeing these at your Christian bookstore at the time? Uh, they were all interpreting these events in light of the end times. And now it's all changed, 30 years later. Um, another thing about these sermons, they seem to be much more enamored with when these events will unfold, rather than what they have to say about how we should live now. That is, the timeline was much more crucial than the promise given to us in Scripture, or even the one giving the promise. It, this is a little more than going to see Madam So-and-so and have her read her tarot cards and tell you the future. That's hardly the intent of apocalyptic literature in the Bible. It's much less about revealing the future and much more about the one who holds that future. In fact, the Christian tradition has always taken this preoccupation with how and when future events will unfold to be sinful. If you go back and read our church fathers, even the reformers, you'll find them saying this. They call people all sorts of nasty names who would try to discern the timeline. Even Jesus says, rather surprisingly, that he doesn't know the hour of his own return. What do we make of that? I mean, do we really think that there are clues deeply buried in the Bible that Jesus is blissfully unaware of? So, enough of this silly detective work, right? Uh, here's something else, and it's all moving to a very positive point, you'll see. The strategy here was always to play on our fears, to scare us into heaven. Fear is a powerful potion that can move us to make very sincere decisions and promises. And yet, what tends to happen is that as the sermon fades into memory, so do those fear-based commitments. Now, I realize there's a place for warning and rebuke and a bit of fear, but it's never fear for fear's sake. Jesus doesn't warn us about his return in order to scare us into heaven, but rather to move us out of our ignorant complacency and to see and adore the love of God for us. It's a much more positive view. Now some of these prophecy sermons that I heard, that we've heard, might preach the gospel, but it's a bit of the gospel with a gun to your head, which turns out to not be the gospel at all. Okay, last objection, and we'll move on. These sermons and conferences had little, if anything, to do with Jesus. Except for referencing him as the one who will come back and make sure you get yours, if you know what I mean. 
But as far as Jesus as the center of God's revelation of himself to the world, the embodiment of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, etc., well, this is absent. In the hands of that preaching, Jesus becomes the hammer that nails his enemies rather than the Savior who loves them enough to lay down his life for them. So we have to confess that we Christians, as we prayed earlier today, haven't reacted very well to texts like this one in Mark. Some of us have misused them to manipulate people into church membership, and others of us, confused by their complexities, have just grown really apathetic about such language. And we just sort of shrug our shoulders, wondering if what Mark says here really matters. And if another coming of Jesus is even in play. So it's, it's all very strange, isn't it, that the Christian year begins with such a frightening and difficult text. What is God saying to us? I suspect that one question, the one question, that raises every significant problem for humanity is, what will the future bring? It seems that our greatest worries and our deepest struggles all stem from the unknown future. Now, some of you worry about getting into college or finding that first job. Whom should I marry? Or if I get laid off, how will I pay my bills? Or what will the biopsy reveal and what does that mean for my family? The future drives our worries and our curiosities. We eagerly anticipate what's ahead. We're standing on our tiptoes, as it were, trying to see what's in the store. It's in the store of our future. And I guess the future isn't too much of a problem when the present is okay. When the present is good, the future looks good. I suppose if I wake up tomorrow morning and it's pretty much the same as today, then who needs to think about the future? But let the economy dip just slightly, or let a car coming from the other direction run a red light, or let an unseen virus spread globally, and suddenly we realize just what little control we have over our future. As soon as the present becomes unsure, watch how much we tend to think about the future. The future is the preoccupation of the one who lives at the end of her rope. The marginalized, the oppressed, the hurting, the poor, the weak, the meek, the one who is sacrificing everything. Did you know that right now, in places like Africa and South America, Christianity is spreading like wildfire? Now, we look around us and we think Christianity is dying. That could not be further from the truth. 
in the southern hemisphere, it is thriving. It is on the move. It can hardly be managed. It is spreading so quickly. Especially amongst the poor and the needy. Now, do you know why? Because Christianity is forward-looking. It opens up a future that turns the present on its head. When Jesus returns, the world will get turned upside down, or maybe we should say right side up. And his arrival, his inbreaking, will be the culmination of the good news that you and I always talk about here on Sunday. Christianity, at its heart, in its essence, is a forward-looking, pushing us, actually pulling us toward a future. God is pulling us toward that future, even now. That's the heart of the good news. And the ones who live in great awareness of their need love to talk about the future arrival of Jesus. Isn't that interesting? When I was a kid, uh, we lived in Mexico for a little while. Uh, And during that time, each Friday, we would go outside the city where we lived, and uh, we would visit a small assembly of believers on a ranch. Um, It's not a ranch as you and I think of a ranch. Uh, That was a a ranch that was not thriving and making lots of money and selling cattle. It was very, very poor, extremely poor. The houses were cement, if you were lucky, very basic, some with doors, some without. The animals would come and go inside the bedrooms. But these folks were happy, and they were generous, and they were so glad to see us each week. We would read the Bible, we would study it, we would sing. Most of the time, they chose the songs they wanted to sing, and then someone would play the accordion as we sang together. Some of you don't even know what an accordion is. They always chose the songs that talked specifically about Christ's salvation, first of all, but especially the hope of a new future with Him. I remember one song in particular. In Spanish, it was called Mansión Yo Quiero. Anybody know Spanish here? Do you know what that song is in English? It is Mansion Over the Hilltop. Anybody familiar with that one? All right, three of us know Mansion Over the Hilltop. I've got a mansion just over the hilltop in that bright land that will never grow old. And someday yonder we will never more wander, but walk the streets that are pure as gold. Kind of an old gospel kind of hymn, song. And they loved thinking about their future in Jesus. The apocalyptic texts that talk about disruption and judgment and cosmic upheaval are the most comforting those people could hear. They love Mark's apocalyptic texts more than they love Psalm 23, if you could imagine. They simply love to hear how Jesus is saying to us, watch out. The world as we know it is ending with my return and you don't want to miss how I'm going to overturn the present and give you a new future. A gift like you can't imagine. And I wonder if we can't imagine that gift 
because we are so comfortable with our present. And that new gift is good news. Or maybe bad news, depending on how your present looks. See, I, I'm guessing that some of us here today think that the Bible is useful, at least occasionally, especially when it reassures me that I'm not as bad off as I feel like I am. But parts like Mark 13 are a little offensive. Judgment isn't becoming for a lovely God. Listen carefully. Jesus is talking to the comfortable, like us, and he's saying, watch out. Be on your guard. You never know when I'll return. You'd better be ready. He's not trying to catch us out or to frighten us into heaven. He's trying to persuade us to turn away from the dead-end life that we're living right now and embrace the only one who can actually give us a secure future. A hopeful future is only with the one who indeed has the power to deliver and God raised Jesus from the dead as proof that this God has the keys to everything that torments us about our future. Even death. It may be the first Sunday of Advent for the church, but in this country it's better known as the first big holiday shopping weekend of the season. And over the next four weeks, Millions of people will spend every extra minute rushing to complete their Christmas shopping because they don't want to be caught. They don't want to be caught out on Christmas morning without the necessary gifts for the people that they love. Isn't that interesting? At Advent, Jesus says, watch for me. And it's at that very time that we pay attention to everything else. Years ago, a friend of mine started his Christmas shopping a little late, 10 p.m. on Christmas Eve. No joke. He phoned the department store at that hour and asked the person on the other end, this was before Amazon, he asked the person on the other end of the line to ship a gift overnight to arrive at his house by 9 a.m. Christmas morning. It's rather ambitious, don't you think? Let's just say it wasn't the best Christmas for him that year. All that shopping, all that time spent fretting over the right presents so we're not caught out on Christmas morning. Yet how many of us attend church every Sunday hardly giving a thought to the fact that Jesus will return and we must be ready for his arrival? Maybe our present is just too comfortable. We have plenty of time for shopping, plenty of money for buying, and we give ourselves to these dead-end lives. And you say, Jason, that is really harsh. It's the first Sunday of Advent. We've been singing carols this morning, for crying out loud. Well, I don't know if it is. Jesus encountered good church folk like us who were preoccupied with other things. One day, a young millennial came to see him. I mean, this guy was networked. He had a solid community. He was respected in that community. 
He had done well financially. But his future niggled at him just a little bit. So he asked Jesus one day, Teacher, what do I have to do to have eternal life? I mean, that's a good question, right? It's a question about what our future will bring. It's the question that indicates how desperate we are to avoid a dead-end life. I mean, maybe you've asked yourself that question before. So Jesus said, all right, um, why don't you just obey the Ten Commandments? That'll do for starters. And he said, yeah, see, I've done that. I've done that since I was a young boy. He hadn't. But Jesus let that one slide. Oh, there's one other thing you could do. You could go and sell everything you have and give to the poor. Then you'll have treasure in heaven. And the young millennial did what? He went away. He went away sad. Because he had great wealth. You see, his present comfort trumped his very marginal concern about his future. And for many of us, if it's a good Christmas and a happy new year, I wonder if we'll bother to get ready for Jesus' return. And you say, what should I do to get ready? Well, Jesus has high demands. Take up your cross, follow me. Whoever loses their life for me and for the good news will save it. See, it's everything. It's about kneeling to a new king. It's about faith and belief that Jesus is Lord and everything and everyone and that future of his will also be mine one day. And deep down inside of us, some of us know that we're caught in a maze of our own self-destruction and Jesus comes along promising a future that will turn that dead-end life on its head. Now that is something powerful enough to change the worst among us, isn't it? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.